Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Yeah, it's 11.15, so we can actually start. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Andy Revkin, 35-year uh, journalist. Um, even when I was at the New York Times writing my old-fashioned stories, starting in 2007, I, I launched a blog called Dot Earth, which grew because I was covering these really tough issues like climate change that are very prismatic, where so many elements of them did not fit into a conventional story frame. And I got tired of trying to fit that complex story into the template for a front page New York Times article. I wrote tons of them, but you know, I went to the North Pole and the Amazon and all kinds of places. But there's a, role in, there's a role that I found when I was doing the blog that was much more engagement oriented. It was listening to readers, you know, shaping a conversation so that to minimize the trolls and jerks. And you can do that. You know, it's your playground, your communication space. If you have a blog, is you set the rules and then that, that leads the conversation forward. And I was just saying a minute ago, Dot Earth was so interesting. Like two years in, a group of my readers self-organized a field trip to New York City, like from Wisconsin and Boston. They met at the New York Times. I wasn't like encouraging them to do this. I was a little nervous about it actually. But engagement, that felt really good because it was a validation of the idea that I created a community. So now um, on this panel today, we're gonna to talk about other ways to think about new models for the thing we call journalism that can more meaningfully engage with readers or listeners or viewers in communities facing big issues. Hey, John. And uh, I keep stumbling on these models, some of which are in journalism and some of which aren't. And this is, so this is like an open brainstorming session. The, the thing I did on Dot Earth was essentially focused on finding room for agreement. The, the other model I did there was not just with a community, but with a community of experts, a community of sources like when a new paper was coming out on something happening on the Greenland ice sheet, I would send it in one email to six or seven scientists who were publishing on that issue, and that email string became a conversation, and I was mediating the conversation. So it's the same mediated approach to expertise. As a path to me, it was very efficient, you know, when you're in a rush. Why, you know, call one glaciologist and then another and then another when you can have them all in a conversation in an email string. And then I would sometimes post the conversation on the, on the blog. So here we've got people who are working on various models for how to engage communities, whether it's a community of experts, whether it's a community of citizens dealing with chronic flooding or in a developing country with dengue and Zika, or dealing with an issue that's chronic and tough and isn't a simple fix and requires some kind of sustained conversation to, to move forward. And so uh, in my reporting, and I guess it was three years ago, when there was an uh, article in EOS, the, the newspaper, the journal, the informal journal of the American Geophysical Union, had this fascinating essay by Jill and two, or two seismologists who described this process they have right here in Fort Collins. It's the John Wesley Powell Center for uh, synthesis and ana analysis, kind of a clunky name, but they do mediations. They, it's like uh, you know, uh, scientists apply to them to do an intervention. <laughs> it's like an intervention, you know, family crisis, 
and, and the scientists in this case, were, they were all at war in the literature over the, the earthquake off of Japan and, and one in New Zealand, and they couldn't figure out these, they were, they were sparring in the literature. The literature is very brittle. And so they come there and they work through these sessions and, and I thought, wow, I would love to figure out how to do that in my journalism. And over here we have the Jefferson Center, which again isn't a journalistic operation historically. I'll let you explain what you do. But it, it grew out of, this is a, a democracy, um, uh, what do you call it, democracy? Democracy discussions, Dis democracy, democracy through discourse. And then I learned from Doug Opplinger at the Akron Beacon Journal that there's this Your Voice Ohio. Anyone from Ohio? Right, so Your Voice Ohio grew out of a complex, tough issue, the op opioid crisis, the model that they've used for civic engagement and a, a journalism operation, an aging newspapers trying to figure out how to stay in business. So you'll hear more from them. And of course, Solutions Journalism Network, Samantha here, it has been, they've been working for how, many, how long is it now? Six and a half years on various approaches to engaging more effectively in your journalism around pathways that can lead to progress without being judgmental and without choosing, without being prescriptive. It's totally doable. And the, the Amanda Ripley essay a year or so ago, commissioned by the Solutions Journalism Network on complicating the narrative. I was talking to, to a journalist here yesterday, uh, today about this. It's a fantastic example of how this actually, this engagement practice goes right down to the level of the journalist and the source sitting having an interview. There's different ways to interview a person. We all grew up, those of you who have spent most of your time in the 20th century, which is a minority maybe in this room now, we grew up with the norm where you're sitting there with your pad and you're interviewing somebody, you're waiting for the quote, like just now in the, the lands debate there. You know, there's a quote, you know, burrows, right? <laughs> it's donkeys and horses. And so you're done, right? So you got your story, it's got hot elements, but that, does that drive us toward actual discussion, uh, uh, solutions? So I wanted to start with Jill. And just like, if you could just sort of lay out how that evolved and how it might apply in journalism, that would be awesome. I did tweet this earlier, so go on Twitter and look at the SEJ uh, 2019 and add your thoughts there too. So some of you sitting on the back, there's a few seats up here too if you want to come in and sit down. There's one in the front row, there's two in the second row. You might want to stand. So just I can We're sit. so low And I'm very short. So, so, so thank you for letting me be on this panel. Um, I am such a scientist, which is, means I'm not a journalist at all. I work for the U.S. Geological Survey. And about 10 years ago, so happy birthday to us, we started a center um, funded by the U.S. Geological Survey and a little bit by the National Science Foundation called, this mouthful that Andy said, the John Wesley Powell Center for Analysis and Synthesis of Earth System Sciences. So you can call it the Powell Center. Um, and, and what we do is we offer the opportunity for scientists in any earth system science discipline, which actually spans in my understanding, all the way from social science to deep earthquakes. Um, anybody can come together with a team of scientists around a compelling, often complex, almost always complex question of their choosing, and we vet these. These proposals go through severe review by a science advisory board. The ones that win and, and are allowed to come, come to the, the Powell Center, which is based here in Fort Collins, and they have opportunities over several years to meet as a group, to go away and do analysis and deep thinking, to come back. We give them a postdoctoral fellow. And the idea is to create emerging knowledge from, from complex questions. 
So we've hosted 57 of these so far today. Not all of them have been controversial. Probably the most controversial is the one that Andy tuned into because they came together and, and they really were warring parties. So these are, there are deep earthquakes that happen in the world, and I'm an ecologist, this is not my field, but these deep earthquakes, um, nobody knows how to predict them and, and, and when and while they're, they're, these scientists are, are coming up with different theories about how you should be predicting them, they were actually sniping at each other in the literature. Well, this isn't getting anybody toward a solution. And, and never do that. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that some disciplines are, are nastier than others. And, and actually, seismology is probably one of them. And, and I don't know why. But, but these groups finally said enough. You know, this was a group that included people from New Zealand and from um, Greece and the Mediterranean and Japan and the United States and they said we're not helping anybody this way if we come to your center can we at least duke it out in a more collegial atmosphere so the idea that we've done and we've done several of these um, where, where groups have come with really divergent views is that, that we know that they come with a common objective and we start to work with them I should say maybe I or the USGS starts to work with them when they build their teams of scientists and we have a couple of ground rules even before they step in the door, which is no prima donnas. You don't want really people to dominate a field if they're going to be in a room trying to come up with solutions. However, in this particular instance, we had only prima donnas because they were the field. So they set their own ground rules. Um, they actually, I'm not sure if this was your topic or if it, it was their, they called it the blood oath, the blood oath solution. What they did is they, when they walked in the, the door, they tried to check their egos. They tried to say, I'm going to, to poke holes in your argument, but when I do so, I'm going to also explain what, what inconsistencies I have in my own argument. And they started the first day, they come for a week at a time, they're at each other's throats. The second day, we sent them all out drinking beer, they came back. They were saying, well, you know, my family did this and your family did something similar, let's continue to talk. The third day, we sent them up into the mountains. One of the nice things we have here in Fort Collins, as you've seen on your field trips, is we have spectacular landscapes and scenery. So we sent them all hiking a particularly challenging hike up to Thunder Pass. And on that day, they started to talk seriously about how they needed to get, how they could get beyond their problems and work towards solutions. So what we try to do at the Powell Center, and this is our shiny example, is develop better ways to shape constructive conversations so that they move beyond the posturing and move toward what will become possibly answers to, to help protect eco, um, communities from deep earthquakes, give better predictive powers. Now we've done this in several other ways and I, I have another idea to talk about. One is that we often have groups come together and they say we have a compelling issue that we want to learn more about. Um, the, uh, the other example I'm going to give you is related to tsunamis, and, and not everything we do is related to earthquakes and tsunamis, but this, these two examples, maybe because those communities are especially fractious, but um, they came together and they say, we want to provide tools for better earthquake prediction or better tsunami preparedness so that communities can get out of the way and not be damaged. And so their approach was to first bring in the communities themselves and say, we want to do this, we have some ideas, but how do you need the information? We've done this several times where we've brought in the communities, sometimes up to 90 people, and they talk through what they need to get 
um, what they need to get out of it in order to be better prepared, then we send those guys away and let the scientists work for the next two to three years. But they keep bringing back the communities and communicating with them. And in many cases, it's begun to result in actual tools to improve preparedness for these kinds of natural disasters. So those are there. It's nothing. It's not brain surgery, but it's it's a way of getting these communities to trust each other and move beyond their own personal ways of viewing things toward a more community and successful way of moving, of, of solving problems. Great. Sorry. Good. So let's, let's go to the Jefferson Center now. Uh, I'm going to sort of migrate to the journalism from these indirect approaches. And just, again, lay out, introduce yourselves and in, in your different roles, and then say, uh, you know, just give that brief primer of how we got, how you got here, and then how you in integrated with journalism would be awesome. My name is Camille Morris-Nicholson, and I'm the program manager for the Rural Climate Dialogues at the Jefferson Center. Uh, and I'm Andrew Rockway. I'm the program director at the Jefferson Center, uh, where I focus uh, principally on our Your Voice Ohio uh, program. So I'll start with a, a short background on the Jefferson Center talk about Your Voice Ohio and turn it over to Camille to talk about the Rural Climate Dialogues program. Um, so the Jefferson Center, we are a uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, civic engagement organization uh, that's focused really on how do we get uh, community members, citizens more involved in policy making, community action, uh, institutional change. Uh, and we use the tools of dialogue and deliberation uh, to convene groups of folks to learn about issues deeply, discuss them with their neighbors and peers, and recommend some solution or uh, action to respond to that issue, uh, and then with our partners, support them in implementing their solutions and ideas. Um, and so we do that across a, a variety of issue areas, whether that's with reporters, with uh, rural communities talking about climate change, with healthcare institutions trying to better engage their constituents. Um, but, but for this, I'll talk about uh, our Your Voice Ohio efforts. So uh, as Andy talked about uh, earlier, this grew out of a partnership with the Akron Beacon Journal uh, s starting in 2015 um, uh, that was really focused on uh, understanding or, or looking at. We know the 2016 election is going to be contentious. It's going to polarize Ohioans. And we know the campaigns and the candidates aren't coming to lift up the concerns of Ohioans but to uh, pull apart, divide, and focus on the issues that they think will get them the margin of victory that they want in the state. Uh, and what we were hoping to do is flip that dynamic and, and start with, uh, okay, um, engaging community members, uh, how do we identify what information, what issues you care most about, what solutions you're talking about, how do you want us as news organizations to cover the 2016 election, not focusing just on the horse race. Um, and what folks really said is, is took a broader approach to journalism and said, regardless of is, is this is campaign season or not, what we really want you to do is engage us as your community, listen to us, and report on the things that we care about, our ideas, the issues that, that are affecting us, and the solutions that we see in our communities, and do that constantly. It doesn't stop when the election is over. Um, and so we, we took that to heart with some pilots in the 2016 election with about 10 newsroom partners. Um, but following the election, uh, as a, a collaborative of news organizations, we grew to uh, about 55 newsrooms that were really uh, excited by the prospect of using uh, community dialogue to better engage their communities. And so the model that we've used is um, what we would call a kind of world cafe model, 
where we engage a uh, diverse, if not representative, group of the community uh, to come together for a couple hours uh, and address uh, three questions on um, whatever the issue is uh, that we're talking about. Uh, we'll take addiction and opioid abuse, for example. Um, getting a, a diverse group of community members to say, okay, what are the, the causes that we see as uh, causes in this community of the, the addiction crisis? What, what resources or assets do we have in our community that we could use to respond to this crisis? Uh, and what are the solutions that we as a community need to implement? Uh, and those are the, the questions that we ask community members. We put journalists in conversation with community members so they're not reporting on this conversation. They're participants on, in this conversation, sharing their knowledge, sharing their insight, but really listening to how people talk about these issues, think about these issues. Um, and what we've seen is that, one, it, it reveals to journalists what information folks already know and where their gaps are uh, in their information. How are they talking about these issues? How are they thinking about these issues? What language are they using? How do they frame this, these issues in their community? And it varies from community to community. Um, what do they see as re really driving factors? And those often differ from what experts and what journalists think are primary considerations or primary concerns with an issue. Um, and more, uh, we think most importantly, what are the solutions? What are the solutions that community members who are affected by these issues, whether they're in active addiction or they're in recovery or their, their family member is in active addiction, what do they see as the solutions? Uh, and how are they evaluating solutions that uh, communities and experts say are working? Uh, and I'll give as an example, uh, uh, many communities in, in Ohio are proud of uh, their kind of resource hotline that they uh, have for community members that are struggling with addiction to, to get help immediately. Uh, and, and we had a, a community in Southeast Ohio in Marietta where somebody stood up and said, uh, where do I go to now for help? And uh, a public health official was very excited and said, yes, we've got this great number that you can call anytime. And the person said, yeah, have you tried calling it at 2 a.m.? It says, call back at 9 a.m. Here are a list of 10 numbers that you can call. Yeah. That's not helpful. Uh, and the county took that to heart and has since changed their uh, hotline staffing program uh, to include more, uh, more uh, staff to staff those lines uh, at all hours. And that was driven by an article that a, uh, a participating reporter wrote uh, about that issue. And so when, when we engage community members, I think what we see is that the, the nature of issues uh, are really different than how we talk about them in kind of uh, rarefied air when only public health officials and experts uh, and journalists and public uh, elected officials talk about these issues. It's very different than how community members are experiencing those issues. And we see dialogue as a way to, to bridge that gap and ultimately produce journalism that is more meaningful, more useful to people's lives. Um, and. Uh, will ultimately, we hope, lead to higher trust, higher engagement, uh, and more sustainable journalism uh, going forward. That's awesome. And your model, your, so just, your model goes back decades, right? 1971-ish? 1971-1974 is when the Jefferson Center uh, started. And kind of the, the principal model that we've used for engagement, which Camille will get more into yeah. uh, as it's more prominent in the Royal Climate Dialogues, uh, is the citizen's jury, which is deeper deliberation rather than um, shorter community dialogue, and I'll let her talk about that. Great. So the Royal Dialogues program has been um, around since 2014 and came in part as a result of a series of state and national level uh, environmental policies that were not really well received in rural communities. 
Um, and part of that, at least in Minnesota, is that there was limited uh, community engagement with rural communities. And so we started from the idea of what would it look like if we went to rural communities first um, and worked with them to understand the impacts of extreme weather and events and climate change. Um, what are the local pressing concerns and what are some possible solutions rather than offering a solution from the top down. And so we've been working with three communities um, in our Rural Cli Climate Dialogues program in pretty distinct parts of the state of Minnesota. And we bring together folks uh, in a citizen's jury model, which Andrew had mentioned. And so what that looks like is it's uh, between 18 to 24 representative uh, members of the community who are randomly selected, but demographically reflective of their county. They learn from uh, local experts that are identified in our pre-engagement process who have special knowledge relating to the community. And so in northern Minnesota, that an example of that would be logging experts. In southern southeastern Minnesota, that might be uh, agricultural experts or water quality experts. And then we bring people together to deliberate for uh, usually about three days using facilitation in the citizen's jury model. We provide compensation for people to participate, which is one of the ways that we're able to have a demographically reflective group of people get together. And then ultimately they make recommendations about what they think their community should do mo moving forward. And so what we've found in that work is that each community's results have been, or recommendations have been pretty different. And that makes sense because they're really different communities, but I think that we um, are, as people, quick to want to think that there's a solution that is broadly applicable, and in reality, that can be a painful um, realization to find that not be the case. And so, um, since working with the three communities, we've seen um, some of them take uh, stronger steps in certain areas. So one community has really become leaders in the state uh, relating to energy issues. They've signed technical partnerships with a city in Germany to uh, have a learning agreement on how, how best to generate more energy than they need as a city. Um, other communities have really focused on water issues and agricultural issues and others have uh, found uh, different sort of ways of implementing the community engagement practices that we've used in their uh, community goings-ons. And so um, one of the communities where we worked, which was our first one, Morris, Minnesota, uh, we had a city manager who did not really believe that climate change was a real issue for the community. And I guess I should mention that the demographic reflectiveness includes ethnicity, age, education, political affiliation, and um, whether people's attitudes towards climate change. And so we had a pretty wide variety of folks in the room and attitudes towards it. And uh, all of our experts weren't on the same page in terms of climate change's impacts in their community. And so we had him present to talk about the um, the impacts of, I think, the stormwater system of extreme weather events and mega rains in uh, their, their community. And then uh, over the course of months and some community engagement 
and working with uh, folks who'd been activated or who had been working with us in the process, he has now become a really big champion for, uh, not, while he doesn't use the language explicitly of it being about climate change for him, uh, it's important that the city is leading on energy issues and that's that's okay you know like that's enough for for making progress and so he's not leading speaking circuits talking about how climate change is a big issue but he his the way that he's showing up is really in a meaningful way and uh, in another community they've received over $150,000 in outside investments um, in pilot projects and building um, community infrastructure to save energy and um, and working on water issues. And so what I, I guess I'm trying to get at with this is that every community's path has been really different and the only way that we were able to allow those uh, recommendations or opportunities to emerge was by treating them like they're different and, and allowing people the space to navigate a, ch a complex issue and, um, and by allowing people to change their mind or be flexible in their beliefs, a, a deliberative process allows that and people don't frequently have an opportunity to hear new information, grapple with it, learn from their peers, and then be flexible because psychology asks us to uh, sort of be our part of our tribe. And so to move to another is really a challenging process. And so. Uh, we're encouraged by the use of community engagement as a way for communities to find action paths forward and uh, to be find their own ways to be leaders uh, relating to climate change. So many interesting threads. Just very quickly, and then we'll go to uh, solutions journalism. Um, Sierra Club and the Inst Institute for Ag and trade policy are involved in some way? And, and you know, how does this get funded? You know, in, in other words, scale, we'll talk about scale later, and there'll be tons of time for questions and thinking from the audience, but scaling, can you train deliberativeness? <laughs> that's, that's, I think, a big part of this. So I think that, so yes, our partner on the Rural Climate Dialogues um, is the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, which is a policy organization based in Minnesota and active globally. And then um, Sierra Club is, uh, did some coverage of um, our program, and so that's their involvement. But um, I think that the resource intensiveness of citizens' juries is pretty high, and so it's not necessarily the right solution for every community. And it would be challenging to imagine a situation where every community was hosting, every county in Minnesota even, was hosting these kinds of dialogues. Um, but I think that there are opportunities to integrate community engagement that's focused and pr uh, meaningful and provides opportunities for people to not only become informed but become empowered through the process. And um, and so I think that there are, and if we, we can talk about it later, but I think that there are opportunities to engage people in meaningful ways and that's really what we found to be the most promising. So Samantha, um, Solutions Journalism Network, when you, when you hear all this, it would be great to weigh in on how that feels in terms of the context of what you're already doing, and then obviously to give the latest on what you are doing to pursue these other pathways toward effective journalism. Sure. Um, so I, my name is Samantha McCann um, with Solutions Journalism Network. Really excited to be here. Uh, Andy doesn't know this, but 
I interned for Grist a very long time ago, and I went to the Carbon Tax Conference, which was held in Connecticut. And Andy, I was but a young child then, and uh, <laughs> you, you wrote a piece referencing a piece I had written for Grist, and therefore my piece was linked to in the New York Times, and it was the greatest day <laughs> of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, right, right, right. So uh, I had a very dark moment walking here today from my hotel. Um, I, was, I wasn't able to join for the gathering in New York at Columbia, the um, nation and CGR. Uh, so I was listening to a recording of it. And then in the beginning, Bill McKibben was giving this really great intro speech. And, and I wanted to know what happened and have a bit of context so I could reference it here. And in the 13 minutes it took me to walk from my hotel to this place, I was like, maybe solutions journalism won't work for this problem. I was like, maybe this is too big. Um, and, I, and then actually just in the last 10 minutes, I was like, wow, that is the power that the media and that the way we frame this can have on people, people like me who sell, <laughs> who sell solutions journalism for their, you know, for my work. Um, but climate change is is unique, and for some reason, it's not fitting into this box of how we perceive of other issues. Um, so, the Solutions Journalism Network, we're a nonprofit organization that trains journalists how to rigorously report on how people are responding to problems, and. That we think that's necessary. We've been around for about six and a half years uh, because there are so many people responding to problems that aren't being covered because there's this little tiny blind spot journalists have, we have, um, that think maybe that's not our job or that maybe if I write about it, it's endorsing it or, you know, there, there are all these little doubts we have. And so what we've done at SJN is try to create a framework around how you do that and keep your integrity, how you do that and stay objective, how can you rely on evidence to show that the solution is or is not working or maybe it's kind of working. Um, and we think that the power of solutions journalism is that media is a feedback mechanism, right? It's showing us what we think the world is. And what we know now is that it's not doing a very good job. Has anyone heard of the Gapminder Institute? Um, so this is, this is the way I start out a lot of the trainings that we do. So the Gapminder Institute is based in Sweden. It was founded by Swedish physician, um, statistician Hans Rosling, who passed away a couple years ago. And he's given this test to the most well-educated people in human history. And by that, I mean people who live in the 14 wealthiest countries in the world. So US, Europe, you know, where are the highest income levels and education levels? And he, it's a 12-question test. And from that test, he measures your knowledge on general world trends. We're talking about over the last 10 years, has poverty rates, have they decreased? Have they stayed the same or have they gotten better? Not like, is it 41%, 40, it's not a trick question. Um, and he does that with 12, um, education levels with girls and boys. He does that with um, uh, vaccination rates. He does that on all these questions. and. The, the most educated people in the country, he did this at the World Economic Forum, 12 questions. Um, the average score on that test is two out of 12. So <laughs> something isn't working, right? And the, the joke that they like to say is that they've also given this test to chimpanzees. 
Um, right? Okay, and so you have three options for each question, A, B, and C, and so they put A on a banana, they put B on a different banana, and they put C, and the, so the average score for chimpanzees is 4 out of 12. So it's like we are actively misinformed, right? We are, we are not seeing the whole picture. Um, so we think things are much worse than they actually are. Um, the 2018 test at Gapminder added a question, it's now 13 questions, and it was about climate change, and it was the only question that, where the answer was things will be worse. It was the only one. Everything was like, you know, over the last 20 years, we've improved in climate, in um, poverty rates, and education, and vaccination, and all these, and climate change was the only one where it was actually, it, it is going to be worse. Um, we also think people are more extreme than they are. Um, there is a, an organization called More in Common. They just released a report a few months ago called The Perception Gap. And they measured people's perception. So if you're a Democrat, what is your perception of what Republicans believe? The average Republican. And, and vice versa. If you're a Republican, what is the way you perceive an, an average Democratic belief? And what we found, or, sorry, I speak for them now, apparently. What they found um, is that the more media you consume, the more, the greater gap there was, right? The more off you were. So we think things are worse than they are. We think people are more extreme than they are. And there's this vast world in the middle of gray, nuanced cover places where people can come together and actually find common ground that isn't being covered. Because, as we say at the Solutions Journalism Network, problems scream and solutions whisper, right? The, the loudest people are on the end of the spectrum, and the people in the middle who are saying, like, okay, I know I have to compromise somewhat, are, not, are saying, oh, I have to compromise somewhat. They're not screaming on Twitter in all caps. Um, and then finally, people are disengaging from the news because of this, because people are screaming in all caps, because of the way we are framing stories that everything is broken and we are all going to die. Um, and this is especially pertinent when it comes to climate change. In the beginning of SJN, we used to refer, there's, there's, so, much, there's so many studies around how people respond to climate change coverage for some reason. I don't know why. You guys probably do. Um, but people are shutting down because the way it has been framed is that there is no hope. Um, Elizabeth Arnold, are you in here? She's not in here. Um, did, re released a report last year at Shorenstein, Doom and Gloom. Um, and the report said that climate coverage, it was a, kind of a meta-analysis of climate coverage, creates a hope gap. It frames people as helpless and voiceless victims, and there is no focus on resilience and response. Right? So why, you know, people, studies have demonstrated that if you think nothing can, nothing can be done about a problem, Number one, you are less likely to believe it as a problem in the first place, because like, you can't actually fathom not being able to deal with something. And number two, um, okay, okay. Um, I don't remember what number two is, but it's along those lines. Um, so what we are trying to do at Solutions Journalism is, is to say there is more to the story. We call it the whole story, not just what is broken, that is so important, right? But also how people are responding to that problem. And when we talk about problem, we're not, you can't talk on this meta level, and that's what I was doing on this 12-minute walk over here when I was like, we are all going to die. Um, you have to break it down into what we call small slices. So not climate change, but how can we, um, 
you know, improve uh, whatever, access to sustainable n natural resources in rural communities? How can we, things where people actually are responding. And the same is true for things like poverty, the same, same as things for tr things like education. There aren't solutions to poverty, there are solutions to increasing uh, the number of children who get free or reduced price lunches in areas where it is needed, right? That is a solution. And so when taken together, we have compiled over 7,300 solutions journalism stories, all of which are vetted and tagged um, in this database called the Solutions Story Tracker. Um, and our a Twitter tag, Twitter handle thing is called, um, is at Souljourno, S-O-L-J-O-U-R-N-O. -O, and my lovely colleague Jules is tweeting out some resources as we speak, S-O-L-J-O-U-R-N-O. -O. Um, and there are over 1,300 stories tagged as environment, um, 300 around the issue of climate change, about 1,000 solutions relating to natural resources and how we can improve and move the needle. Um, and the purpose of this is that all over the world, there's so many lessons to be learned. And you, you know, we all have our little narrow world where we read news and where we hear about things. And this is meant to surface possibilities from around the world, across contexts, across cultural divides and borders, um, so that we can learn from each other and hopefully change the narrative and get buy-in um, from people who should be buying in. Bravo. So thank you all, first of all. Wow. I'm going to start with audience questions right away. I've got so many, um, but I don't want to hug my. See, you were in the back there and say who you are. Uh, make sure, are you a member? We have to start with. Um... My question is um, it seems that we're in a moment of what I call literary hysteria about climate change. It's like, oh my God, the uninhabitable earth kind of kicked it off yeah. two feet. And uh, my question is aren't we sort of coming into a phase? New York will be armored, Miami will go. I mean, it's going to be a new world, but it's not going to be like uh, monks burning in the uh, hand you know? Right. And uh, so is this a passing phase? What do you think? Yes, I have thoughts, but why don't you go first? Any, any quick thoughts on that? I guess that is my question to answer. I, uh, I hope it's a passing phase. It's the, we're in the middle of a 100-year challenge. It took 100 years to get carbonized. It's going to take 100 years at best to get decarbonized completely. And we don't know how to do that. And there's been a surge of concern. The thing that I get thinks gets missed enormously, and I've been talking about this here earlier, is a lot of the losses and the drama in the headlines in the last few years has been from built exposure and from settled vulnerability. The built exposure is the wildfire impacts. The PG&E wouldn't be turning off its wires if there weren't tens of thousands of houses built in forests getting, that are totally ready to burn. So it's, it's the built vulnerability that's the crisis. And just go on Twitter and search for expanding bullseye, hashtag expanding bullseye in my name and you'll see a ton of stuff about that, including a paper, a 2014 paper by a Michael Mann climate scientist who's another one, not, not Michael Mann. Uh, that says California is building 650,000 more houses by 2050 in zones on the map that are already designated severe wildfire risk. That's already in the works. So we're making the bullseye worse. And that's gonna burn. So if, if your definition of climate emergency includes that, we have a climate emergency. If, it, if it's all about CO2, it's a very different problem. 
And even if Greta and I and Al Gore ran the world starting tomorrow, CO2 drawdown takes decades and doesn't affect the climate system for decades. So all that build vulnerability is still going to burn and flood. So that's the issue there. Um, here. here. Um, so I'm Karen Pynchon at PBS Frontline. Um, one thing when thinking about journalism and how to do these types of stories is when you're a news institution that prides itself on objectivity, on impartiality, that's kind of the first filter that everything goes through. How, and you're, you're used to seeing a scientist as a source, not as a collaborator, um, when it comes to these kind of complex projects, can you give us a bit of an overview of the ethics filters that these projects, that these kind of ambitious projects have to go through in order to maintain that dependability? With, with solutions journalism? Yeah. Sure. Um, so the, the four core criteria of solutions journalism is that Number one, it's about a response to a social problem and how people do, are doing it. So not just the problem, but the response. Um, the second is that it includes all available evidence that something is or is not working. So you're not, you know, you're relying on quantitative studies or longitudinal studies or qualitative studies or anecdotes, anything to show that this seems to be something that is working somewhat. Um, the third is, is insights, and insights are the larger lessons that can be applicable across contexts. What, what are the real, when you get down to it, what is the shared learning here? What, what could other people take away from this? And the fourth is limitations. You always include limitations in solutions journalism stories. So where is this program or effort or initiative falling short? What, who, what kind of community doesn't it reach? Uh, maybe this is only relevant in X countries with X cultural realities. Um, there are always limitations. Maybe it's totally politically unpalatable and it only works in Sweden and it just won't work here. And that's, that is a true limitation. And so those are the kind of things that strengthen your credibility as a journalist and that protect you from seeming to advocate for a particular outcome. And, and one quick follow-up. Um, and when you're like in your editor's office and you say the word solution and they automatically think, like, no. Yeah. <laughs> so we were perhaps misnamed. Um, the, the joke around the office is we should have been called like the response to a very large problem that might work in some context, but not all. It really depends on the <laughs> evidence. Journalism Network, so it didn't fly. Solutions is so loaded, and it implies finality. It implies this is the end, and this is the answer, and that's not what we're saying. We're saying this is one step forward. This is one way to respond to a very complicated issue. Is there anything that came from the Your Voice Ohio experience that gets at that a little bit? You know, opioids, there's, there's science there, too, and also social science. Yeah, so I'd say... There's a couple pieces of the, of it. Um, I think one, uh, it's not you're not necessarily doing political advocacy if you're advocating on behalf of your community that you serve as a local reporter. You care about the community you live in. You want to see it thrive. I think taking the opposite stance as being objective is not doing local newsrooms any favors. Um, I think the other piece of it is particularly in the context where we start with engagement and ask folks what do you see as solutions? That gives a little bit more freedom to say, okay, here's how this might work, here's how this wouldn't work, here's where we've seen other examples of this working. And it's not the journalist coming up with these ideas that's going to save the community necessarily, although that can, that can happen. But it's really, our community wants to, us to report about this, so let's report about this. And I think that any journalist would, would be fine with that. So that's how we've seen it with, with addiction and other issues. More questions? Maybe in the middle of the room, uh, pink shirt and, and uh, Adam. 
Mike Carlowitz, Nassar Observatory. Um, this is, I guess it can be for everybody, but specifically for Andy. Um, the tradition in journalism is journalist as observer. Um, you're one of some people I've watched from afar that have sort of made this tradition to this transition towards getting involved. How do you how do you sell that to yourself, one, and how do you sell that to existing or potential employers since we work in a field that's not keen on people getting involved? It's not the tradition, it's also not the business model. I, I was talking to a young journalist in the front row earlier about this, or not, not you, it was actually someone, uh, there's a young woman who's at the University of Missouri. And um, I said, get, get the regular job. She was asking, you know, what do I do getting out of journalism school? And, and I described my uh, journey early 80s. Uh, my first job was assistant copy editor at Science Digest magazine. And in my spare time, I was doing reporting. And actually, my editor encouraged that, which was cool. And he wanted me to do a story on lung, trans lung transplants because it was a new thing. And the lung transplants that I was reporting on, both these guys were dying because their lungs had been exposed to an herbicide, Paraquat. And so I just doing a lot of phone calls about what's with Paraquat? Why, why are these two guys in different Toronto and Atlanta? Completely different circumstances, dying, having a revolutionary procedure because of Paraquat. And so I kept making phone calls and I started calling like Thailand and Trinidad and I kept making phone calls. This is before the internet, you know. And it turned out that hundreds of people around the world every year were being, uh, dying because of exposure to this stuff. So I went to the editor and said, you know, I think the story is not about uh, lung transplants. <laughs> it's about Paraquat. And I was t describing this to her, and I won an investigative reporter's editor's award as a as, a, as an assistant copy editor because I let I torqued my editor's thinking to my own thinking. And Dot Earth, I created it because I was facing complex stories that, that the New York Times, including my own stories, weren't capturing correctly, over and over again. And I, we were doing blogs on like sports and stuff, and I said to the blog guy, "Hey, can we do a blog on?" How do we get to 2050 without screwing up too much? That was the blog, you know. And, and no one said, no one was saying, Andy, we need a, a you know, sustainability blog. I just did it. And then all the way forward, no one ever understood it, but I did it. And so I said to her, like, use social media if you don't have permission to, you know, go look at the social media guidelines at your newspaper or wherever you get hired, and then just test the limits in terms of being an engagement journalist. <laughs> you know, do your job, but do that too, and then find your own path, build your audience. And we're all, we are all, you know, we're not objective. You're all in this room because you chose to write about the environment, right? You're not writing about sports. You're not writing about the stock market. So any idea that you're objective is already out the window. Um, I did a long, uh, there's people here from uh, Willamette. Um, I did a talk at Willamette University in 2005 on passion and detachment. How do you, the personal and the professional, how do you do that? And my passion is reality matters. You know, Dot Earth was all about that, and it made me very inconvenient for everybody. But maybe I could be totally an advocate for that, but I'm an advocate for, and sometimes reality is gray, right? And the Dot Earth experience was created because I couldn't fit the gray into a New York Times 800 word story. So that is my trajectory. And at Columbia, I'm teaching, I'm not teaching, I'm building a program, I will be teaching. How do you make information matter, period? Some of that within journalism, some of it very much not within journalism. Some of it with NASA, I mean, Columbia is connected to NASA through the GIS. How do we make journalists have better access to scientific insights? How do we have communities? 
have better access to information on sea level rise, but that they'll engage with, you know, and without the skill sets, without this deliberative skill set, uh, uh, consensus building institute, um, similar to what you do, I think. We're at this managed retreat meeting we did at Columbia, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna just go in for another minute. They, they said, it doesn't matter, when you want a community to start thinking about adaptation to realities like sea level rise, you don't go in with a white coat and give speed, talks, you do sustained engagement. And she said, you don't, it doesn't, actually she said it doesn't matter what you start talking about, as long as you just keep talking. And, but also listening. And that's the, the active listening thing is the stuff that these guys, Amanda Ripley's piece on complicating the narrative is essential reading to my mind for any journalist. It's, it's, it's the engagement model that we're all talking about in terms of a community, but it's like journalist and source. How do you interview somebody so you're not just mining for the quote? So, and it's looping. I, things I never learned, they, 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 you know, she got into this, well, she went to a guy, there's a guy at Columbia who runs the Difficult Conversations Laboratory at Columbia. And so there's science there. <laughs> like, we need to write about that science too. I'm sorry I went on a tangent, but here we go. More, yeah. Can I add one, yeah, one bit to that? So Amanda went to the Difficult Conversations Lab and found that people have better conversations. And by that, they mean they, like, they reach more points along some spectrum. I don't know what it was measuring, but it's called better conversations. When they read a nuanced piece of coverage about a polarizing issue versus a very, pro, like, this is a story about abortion rights, or this is a story about pro-life rights, or whatever it is, that people have better conversations after they're exposed to kind of the spectrum of an issue. And that, that can be really something that can move the needle in terms of how we move forward on climate change. And that blood oath thing is so cool, too. The, you know, just having to finish your talk with your opponent's point of view. Yeah, so having to, having to repeat, having, having to uh, not only repeat what, they, what the flaws are in your argument, but have to, having to then repeat to them what the flaws are in your own argument. And one of the biggest things, and I've heard in everybody's presentations today, one of the best ways you do this is by building trust over time. So we bring scientists together for a week at a time, 24 hours a day. Um, by the end of that, they, they do have these more nuanced ideas of each other's viewpoints, um, where they're coming from, their flaws, and, and time is the most important thing, and that's, you talked about it as well. So, so you could get to these objective ways of moving forward by, by allowing these people to come together. Adam, and then um, you. So um, Adam Glenn, I teach journalism So to Andrew and Camille, quick question, just practical matters. Um, I, I've tried projects too where you bring together community members with uh, journalists and experts. And one of the big challenges, uh, and this part is to Andrew, is uh, community members, um, particularly in um, communities that are troubled in some way, uh, poor, um, already heavily polluted, et cetera, they don't either, they don't have time to participate. You can't get them to a day meeting because they're working. You can't get them to a night meeting because they're working their second job and taking care of their kids. Um, or you get people who are just so involved, it's the same three people you know, doing everything. So techniques or tricks that you've used, and then very quickly, you know, I'm fascinated by the project. 
I didn't hear where journalists or news media plug in, so maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, so in terms of um, how do you move beyond the usual suspects, uh, um, I think there's, it, it's really context specific, but in the, for thinking about addiction, it's people are already having these conversations about how do we respond to this um, outside of journalism, and oftentimes it was on in Facebook groups. Um, so part of that was um, either our staff or reporters um, reaching out to the folks who run those groups and saying, um, you know, we, we want to learn more about what you're doing. Um, we want to see, you know, what our role as reporters can be to support the work that you're doing, if there's information or research um, that we can provide. Uh, and then, hey, also, we're, we're having this series of conversations around this issue. We would love um, to... Uh, you know, put you in conversation not only with us, but with uh, elected officials, public health officials, folks that they really don't get to interact with uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And so it's really, um, I think this, the, the key point for all of this is coming at it from a, um, not an uh, extractive uh, or um, even transactional uh, relationship, but really um, as a reporter and as somebody with a lot of power in a local community, um, or even if, if you're in a, a, a national outlet, there, there's a power imbalance, and so starting from a point of what can I do for you, rather than how can you help me, is critical. And I think we don't we don't start from that that point often enough. Thanks for asking about um, the journalism connection. And so, um, because our work, Andrews and my own, uh, has some similarities. Um, my estimation of how this applies is that I think that there are some practices that we've used that would be useful for journalists. Um, one of them being allowing communities to identify issues um, or articulate priorities or values or needs. Um, another would be to tap into local networks. And I recognize that there's a difference between um, national outlets and local media. Um, but I think that also, um, <coughs> Engage, direct engagement, which is the process that we use, is valuable, um, as well as building relationships. And to uh, sort of restate differently what Andrew mentioned is not looking at it as a transactional um, as a transactional relationship, but rather or a transactional a transaction, but thinking about it as a relationship. And so tapping into um, community journalists in places that are affected by the issue that you're covering and allowing them to leverage their networks as opposed to flying in and trying to um, have a few conversations and then leave. We do pre-organizing, hold our event, and then commit to communities that will work with them for um, what's now been years in some. And so that is like a long-lasting relationship. And I think that that is, in ways that that's possible, I think that that's been one of our greatest assets. So before we get to that next question, I want to, John Upton, who's the partnerships guy at Climate Central, see, I want to connect you with them to see if there's a template through which their community engagement can work with the kind of stuff Climate Central is doing, partnering your database journalism and science with regional reporting. This is like on the to-do, I'm trying to assemble a to-do list before we leave the room. <laughs> So that next question, if you just to repeat the question a little bit, it's about from the, at the local standpoint. Um, obviously, you have local readers, and you got these big global issues. To my, to my, is that a question? How do we do that, or is it like? 
I think you can. It's a question of how do you do it. Um, John, Climate Central is specifically offering up a partnership approach to journalism where they can take a study about wildfire risk and integrate it, depending on where you are in the country, with how you would deal with your readers that you know on the ground. And they can provide the mapped data on vulnerability and forest uh, condition or whatever. We can all do that in Columbia University. That's part of what I'm going to be building is too, is more of a match.com for <laughs> that stuff. Enabling local journalism. The Council on Foreign Relations, by the way, CFR.org, early this year had a, a workshop, three-day workshop in New York City, because you know they deal with all these big global issues, trade and climate and security and war, and they they're, they're got a grant from Knight Foundation to run these workshops for regional and local journalists to come to New York and hear from international experts on, and then to brainstorm how to integrate that into your coverage on the ground. So there's a lot of interest in those say, global, you know, global local uh, partnerships that can work. It's totally there. The capacity is there. It's just the linkages that need to happen. Um, just to make sure I have a bad field of view. Yeah, here. Thank you. My name is Trina Kleist. Um, I'm a longtime journalist, but I'm also um, a, a student at the University of Nevada, Reno, Reynolds School. Um, I really, really appreciate um, the, the way the panelists today have called out the power of local journalism. I feel like local journalism just gets um, so little love and and the local journalists are the ones that are out there slugging out in the trenches. And I know from my own experience in very interesting backwaters that I write a story and, you know, it, I've really got to be so careful because I'm going to run into these people at the grocery store. You know, my kid goes to school with this guy's nephew's grandson, okay? And, and I'm connected with these people six different ways. So... Um, I, I just want to really call out the power of local journalists, journalists to be a part of local communities um, figuring this stuff out. Um, I, I do want to ask, though, something that I, I have experienced myself, especially in covering climate change, is that I get local groups that really want to hijack the local process. You know, and if I'm not reporting um, their point of view as the particular gospel, then I'm you know, in somebody's pocket, or I'm fake news, or whatever. So um, I would love some solutions to that problem. Thank you. Yeah. Any quick thoughts on either of those components? Of the, yeah. <laughs> so I think this is where setting ground rules from the very beginning might make a difference. I'm not a journalist, but if you if you um, have them state their views, you can, I don't want you to have opposing views coming in so they're just fighting, but you need to have a way to mediate between them so that there's a way to pull the, the real information out of, of what are opposing opinions. And the national media could learn something from that. I guess this gets back to this partnership thing. You know, the more national media can think about partnering with locals who have that more intimate relationship with their audiences, it benefits the nationals and the locals, you know, in terms of what the journalism student was saying and what John works on. I mean, his title is Partnerships, right? Partnership ed Partnerships Editor. Uh, there. Andy, can I say just one Sorry. quick thing on that last point? Yeah, of course. Um, I think the, the other thing about in-person conversations that are really helpful, um, if you can make sure that you get a, a diverse group of folks attending, is that a lot of folks that are really engaged on an issue can't fathom that somebody who is a reasonable person 
thinks differently than them about that issue and why they think differently about it or how they think about it. Um, and so putting people in conversation with each other and seeing the reality of how this person is thinking about this issue or struggling with this issue and what they care about, I think can help assuage the you're in somebody's pocket because actually this is a person that I'm trying to serve as well and this is how they're coming at that issue. So more explanation about how a person arrives at their decision might be um, something that would help my credibility in dealing with that local issue. I think so, yeah, just coming at it from how are people thinking about this, what are their values behind it, and often people are coming from similar places but they have ha had different experiences or different priorities that lead them to different conclusions. Um, or not even different conclusions, but are just kind of, in some cases, talking past each other and putting them in conversation helps to resolve some of those tensions. And this, and this all gets to training. Like, what do journalists need to be thinking about when, how they interact with people? And how, if, you, if journalists are going to run a conversation as opposed to just doing discrete interviews with you and then you, it's a different skill set, right? Um, I'm going to ask my colleague Jules to, I have some handouts here of 20 do, 22 interview questions to complicate the narrative. So these are questions that we have compiled and crowdsourced over the last year um, based on Amanda Ripley's article. When you are a reporter interviewing a source, what are the questions that actually allow you to get underneath people's positions? Because all you hear about are positions and then it's so easy to caricaturize someone. But what, yeah, what are the values shaping it? Maybe it's someone who cares about, you know, respecting authority or maybe it's someone who cares about, you know, think about the, the moral foundations theory and what, what actually, what experiences have shaped, what, um, their actual political positions. And you don't get to that often. So these are questions we think do that. This is so awesome. We have like 14 minutes, so that's kind of decent. But let's take maybe two, if we get like two or three things on the floor. You, you, and then you. So just sort of like crystallize it and then we'll... Hey there, uh, Grace Hood from Colorado Public Radio. Uh, I was actually interested in hearing sort of the solutions journalism overlay to a climate uh, topic that we regularly cover here in Colorado, which is wildfires. So interested in hearing, you know, in public radio, our news holes are newscast, four-minute features, digital. What is a way that we could apply uh, solutions journalism looking at climate change to something like wildfires? looking to workshop that with y'all. I can workshop that with you for sure. Uh, so, so modest, how can you do it like a modest start to this, uh, which I think was that radio question? Yeah, um, and I think public radio is really great at this relative to other news outlets, is just making yourself available and saying that we, we are open to engaging with the public. You don't have to host community forums every night of the week, every day of the year, um, but, but be out in the community regularly uh, and, and say, this is if you have an idea, we want to hear it. Here's how you can reach us. It can be digitally. But just make yourself available across all of your reporting focuses. Uh, and I think KPCC in Los Angeles does a really good job of this, of saying, we're a public radio station. We want to be open to the public. And I think more news organizations need to do that. Um, so I would look to KPCC as an example of, of how to do that well. And climate. I have my own ideas, but... On whether solutions journalism will work. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't mean for that to be the takeaway of my talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, 
I think it is important to continue to surface responses that are potentially scalable. That's what we always look at is can this apply in other contexts or does this only really work here? Um, yeah, I mean, we have 1,300 ways, many of which are NCS stories in the story tracker about how people are responding. It's like, are the right people paying attention? Is this big enough to have the kind of impact it needs to actually move the needle on something as big as climate change. I think part of the messaging and part of the problem with how we've been talking about climate change is the, is the timeline. There's no timeline on poverty in the same way or broken education systems that makes it, you feel like the, the, the more urgent you frame it, the more people are paying attention, but people shut down if they think nothing can be done. And reconsider the timeline. Just, you know, there's a lot of questions there. There, I think you were, well, you ask and then you ask. Two more, like, in a row. Hold your question for a second, because I want to get at the wildfire thing. So I, I got a vision of one workshopping thing, okay? With John, they did a whole prescribed fire long, John's right here, John Upton, package, working with regional journalists on where, there's, where places are overdue to burn, should burn, but there are all these impediments to prescribed fires. Um, I, there's this amazing video online shot in March by the National Institutes, NIST, the National Institute for uh, something in standards and technology, of a, of a prescribed fire in New Jersey, and it's a 360 video. You go on uh, YouTube. I have a link to it. I could, sh if I had this up, we could show it, and you would be blown away. So you could have so, and you have these maps. As I said, Michael Mann. The other Michael Mann climate scientist <laughs> did this 2014 paper on California wildfire. You have all the maps in, in Colorado, the red zone. So convene the communities in the red zones and say, here's what you're building right now. Here's what you've built already. Here's the paper. Show them the data on fire deficit. That's a term in the literature. And it's huge and totally scary. And then you show this video and you say, no one leaves the room until we have at least one action point on our zoning or our building codes. As we hash out the CO2 problem, what is our responsibility? What's our accountability? There's a great accountability story in every town in the West on wildfire. Why do we have, why don't we have, and it's not just wildfire. Tornado zones. Norman, Oklahoma, the home of the National Severe Storms Lab. Norman, Oklahoma does not have a building code for tornadoes. 90 miles away, Moore, Oklahoma, which suffered two disastrous F5s in the last 20 years or so, they finally got a building code. So why does Norman not have a building code? That's a great accountability story, isn't it? I mean, isn't that like what we do? Uh, but no one's doing it uh, that I have seen. So the stories are all there, and the convening is possible. You know, around the data, have a city council meeting, force them to you know, show them the data, and see who leaves the room or not. You know, it's, it's, so it's totally doable. I'm happy to help with that part of things. Uh, other questions? Just want to make sure. You, uh, so just kind of, let's do a quick round here and then get some final thoughts. We have seven minutes. Hi, I'm Hannah Weinberger with Crosscut out of the Seattle PBS office. Um, we're a pretty small station, but we've dipped our toe into talks and community engagement, and I'm wondering about the most effective ways to help the projects that you do live on. You know, if you're not permanently embedded in a community for years, you know, you have to present what you found online in a way that reinforces that it's a community engagement process, so what are the things, I guess, you know, Sam and Andy, that you feel you've seen are most effective in terms of um, reinforcing that people are supposed to continue engaging with your journalism and it's not the be all. So continuity and measuring outcomes, keeping track. Uh, where were the other, uh, quickly state your question. 
My question is, so I also, I run a magazine in Northern California in the Bay Area, so we're doing local journalism. And when I look at the solutions journalism that we do and we've been doing for a long time, I can see that it's receiving lower traffic. How do I convince my publisher I need to keep investing in this? Because I want to. How do you sell it? Brian Minkowski, Environmental Health News. I just want to ask Andrew and Camille if there are metrics outside of legislative change that you measure to for your impact. So two or three questions on metrics, like financial metrics, impact metrics, and there was one or two more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Justin Wasser, I hope you'll permit an advocate question. Um, I think, okay. It, it, so, so, so it comes to the heart of the complicate, uh, complication, or complicating narrative and nuance. As an advocate, um, I do industry accountability, and I feel like um, there is, uh, when, when I'm trying to deliver a message, um, there are interests out there that enjoy complication and nuance. Yeah. And the specific example that I'd like to talk about is in 2000, December 2018, Yale released a study that said 50% of Americans, 56% of Americans think that global warming is real, but they believe that it's 50-50 on the science. Only 19% of Americans think that accurately that 90% of climate scientists are correct. So how in this realm of uh, you know, nuance um, do we correct these things that for an advocate out there, I see as huge impediments to the policy that uh, we need to implement? Well, you should ask the Sierra Club because again, they were involved with some of this They've written about and did videos about this model here. So, and they're, you know, beyond cold is a big push. I'd literally ask the Sierra Club. They're here. Um, I mean, some people are here. I'd be interested to hear their response. To me, it's all about um, being accurate. You know, how much of the vulnerability, how much of the destruction we're seeing in the West or in, even in the Bahamas was a result of political or poverty drivers and how much is a result of global warming from greenhouse gases. That's, it. That's science, and it's doable, and it's complex, yes, but it gives you action points on all these things right now that are important stories. So me metrics, 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 like maybe, maybe Samantha on like, how do you sell a newsroom on something that might not be a hit uh, in, a, in an instant way? Can I think on that and let you? Yeah, 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 go down the line. Okay. So this is very fast, but um, our synthesis, our synthesis center is one of a consortium of synthesis centers, and we are compiling data on follow-on. So scientists come, scientists go, they publish over four or five years, and then eight or nine years later, we go back and say, are you still working together? So what we're trying to find out is whether we've changed the culture, and, and, and luckily it turns out that we are. These scientists who came together before, who may not have known each other or trusted each other, um, eight or nine or ten years later are still working together on common related issues. So th the approach of bringing teams together to work through these questions and get past each other's biases seems to work even in science. Any last thoughts on measurement? All these foundations like M&E, measurements and impact and evaluation, blah, blah. <laughs> For the uh, Real Climate Dialogues evaluation uh, metrics. We looked at, at attitudes towards people, um, people's attitudes towards climate change, whether they think that they have a responsibility, whether they think they're equipped, um, and whether they feel the same way about the um, state and local government and federal government as well. And so we see largely the trend is that people believe that it's more pressing and um, that more people need to take action. 
And then we also, um, on a sort of a project-by-project project level, uh, looking at the amount of financial investment that rural communities get in building um, climate-resilient infrastructure is pretty low, um, especially in comparison with urban areas. And so for us, uh, looking at where funds are being spent um, in rural areas on climate is a useful way of um, judging our impact. And I'll just say this one last thing. You know, you don't have to be, the, you don't always have to be the, I guess this gets to your point about journalism not having to do everything. The American Geophysical Union, seven or years or so ago, created Thriving Earth Exchange, thrivingearthexchange.org. And it's a way for scientists with earth and climate capacities to engage with the communities with chronic flooding or wildfire risk or landslide risk or agricultural drought issues. So they have this match.com process for scientists and communities. And journalists can just write about that. Among other, that's a story, right? And then you're insulated from any worry about being you know, other than a journalist. And then uh, I got to point one last thing to John Sutter, CNN, former CNN reporter, who's now, he, the best piece of journalism on this, along these lines I've seen, it was 2015, he did this Two Degrees series leading up to the Paris talks. And it was all audience driven. I just got a long email from him two days ago because I'm writing something about this. It, it's all like him listening to his readers his watchers, his viewers, and they wanted to know why are, why are there deniers? What are they like? I want to learn more about them. And he's, he was worried about it. He said he was worried. He's from Oklahoma originally, so he found Yale study showed that Woodward County, Oklahoma, is the most skeptical county in America on global warming as of 2015. So John went there, and uh, he spent some time. He did the stand-up interviews, and this gets to your point about what is your goal? And he interviews this guy, it's a three-minute interview, just John Sutter, Woodward, Google. And this guy, he's like an oil company guy. You know, he makes his money in oil. And he says, God controls the environment. So you're going, okay, damn. And then, but then he says, uh, you know, we have half of our roof covered with solar panels, and we want to get off the grid entirely. Same guy. And you process that for 30 seconds, you realize the reason he wants to get off the grid is the same reason he's never going to vote for a Democrat because he doesn't want government imposing anything on him. He's libertarian, and he has his own motivation, passionate motivation for getting off the grid. So do you go into that town saying, global warming, global warming, global warming, or you go into that town listening and saying, wow, here's a guy, wow, solar panels, and, you have, and, and he's like, he's a creationist too. He funded these like dinosaur statues in the, the town. So this is a complicated narrative, you know, but John did a fantastic piece about that, and it was driven by readers and, and he's a very special model, I think, to think about going forward. And I would love to thank the panel again. I think there's room here to do uh, some more workshopping. So thank you. Thank you all. And get, get on Twitter. You'll see, you know, we can keep it going there, too. And we're all easy to find, right? So thanks again. <laughs>